let me ask you, what's the difference between a groove and a rut? What's the difference between a groove and a rut? What would you say? Feel free to shout out your answer. Size. Size? Okay. What's in, what's in smaller, do you think? Groove. A groove smaller, rut's bigger? Okay. Good. I'm like, I, this is great. Other thoughts. What's the difference between a groove and a rut? Positive and negative. Positive Which one's positive? Well, okay. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure. Okay. Okay. That's right. Okay. There you go. The difference is one's positive. What else? Difference between a, a rut and a groove. I think, like, like Jenny first pointed out, they can look the same, can't they? Right? Ooh, I, I like that. <laughs> established, groove has an established path. Okay. Anyone else want to chime in? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Uh, groove <laughs> is uh, uh, something that's intentionally created for a purpose, a rut is something that's overused. Ooh. Excellent. Oh, yeah, Jeff. Grooves help, ruts don't. Okay, grooves help, ruts don't. Excellent. Anyone else? These are, these are all excellent answers. And there's, there's a lot probably we could say about the difference between these two, right? However, I think, I think the biggest difference between a rut and a groove is this. And, and she alluded to it just a moment ago. A rut is something you get stuck in. Right? In contrast, a groove is something that takes you someplace. You're you're grooving, right, Steve? Right? Grooves are when things are working. There is a momentum. You're moving in a positive direction. Ruts are very different. You don't progress in a rut, do you? Do you? No. No, you feel stuck. Indeed, you can also feel trapped or hopeless, can't you? Now, you don't have to say it out loud, but have you ever been in a rut? <laughs> Judging by some of the laughter, yes. <laughs> have you ever been in a rut? Be it at work or at school, maybe in a relationship. To be sure, being in a rut is no fun, no matter what kind it is. That said, though, I, I think I'm going to suggest that fewer things are more frustrating than being in a rut when it comes to relational conflict. What I mean is that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, there are times or seasons in our lives where we get in a rut where it seems like you're always at odds or bickering or fighting with someone else, be it a co-worker, a sibling, or a spouse. Do you know what I'm talking about? Indeed, it can seem at times that yelling, bickering, anger, and frustration are simply par for the course. And I wonder, is that true of you this morning? 
Are you in a rut relationally in regards to conflict? To put it another way, are you seemingly always at odds or fighting with your spouse, your brother or sister, or a coworker? And if so, do you feel hopeless? Like you're stuck, that no matter what you try to do, man, nothing changes here. This person, man, it's always this way. I'm going to say this, they're going to say that. It's always this way. This morning, uh, we're going to be studying 2 Samuel verses, or rather, chapters 2 through 3. In these chapters, they tell the story of David's journey to be enthroned as the king of all the tribes of Israel. And I need to tell you, it is not a pretty story. For you know what these chapters are absolutely full of? Conflict, fighting, bickering, loads of it. (laughs) David's ascension to be the king of all the tribes of Israel is marked by discord and adversity. And here's the question that I want us to consider this morning. And that is this. When we take a step back and we look at these two chapters, as well as our own lives, here's the question I want us to consider, and that is, what is the source of the relational conflict we experience in our own lives and that we also see recorded in vivid, high-definition color in 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 3? This is to say, here's my question, What causes us to stay stuck in the rut of relational conflict? It's an important question, isn't it? Because unless we first discover, please hear me, the source of our relational conflicts, we will never know the solution And I believe our text this morning sheds valuable light on this very question. So if you haven't read with me, haven't already, turn with me to 2 Samuel 2. That's page 255 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. As you're about to see, this this section chapters 2 through 3 of 2 Samuel is a rather large swath of Scripture. And what it focuses on, it's a unit that centers on the account between David and a chap by the name of Abner. But what I want to do this morning is do things just a little bit differently. And that is I want to move through this text at a 30,000-foot view level, just at a high level here. So we can see how the entire section fits together. I want you to understand the flow of the narrative and see the the various conflicts and stripes 
that emerge in it. Next week, my hope is to dive into more of the particulars of the text. But for this morning, I just want us to get a big overview to see what's happening here in the narrative. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I begin to read 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 2. Notice how this passage begins. You'll recall that David, King David, just led God's people and lamenting the death of both Jonathan, his best friend, and Jonathan's father, Saul, the first king of Israel. So we read this. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there. He and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and, they were, and, they, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. It's important to note that the author wants us to see that David, from day one, he's wanting to submit himself to God. For David to be an effective king for God's people, he must submit himself to the kingship of God. And the author goes out of his way to make us know that's the case. So now notice what David does next. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. You recall from 1 Samuel 31, the Philistines wanting to absolutely humiliate Israel and Saul. They chop off his head, they stick him on a, on a they nail him to a wall, and the men of Jabesh Gilead wanted to honor their first king, so they take him down and they bury him. And David wants to honor them for that. So verse 6, Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be vigilant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So David's making a very good move here. He's going to these men, he's honoring them, they now know that David has been anointed king of God's people. But they're not the only people who know this. You know who else knows and has known for quite a long time that David was to be God's true anointed king over Israel? Abner. Think about this. Abner was Saul's right-hand man. He was there when David killed Goliath. He was there to see David develop. And he was also there next to Saul to oppose David. Abner knows very well who's to be the king of God's people. So notice what the text says in verse 8. 
But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahiahim, and made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. So here he knows full well there's to be one true king in Israel. And who's that to be? David's. But what does he do? He takes Saul's son and he makes him king. Now, at this point in Israel's history, it's important for you to know that the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, remained like independent political entities. One commentator put it this way, they were more like nation states making up the European Union than countries and the nation of Great Britain. And as this text makes clear, they weren't unified. So notice what we've learned about Abner thus far, okay? He's rejecting God's true anointed King David. And although he himself can't be king, what we're going to see is he's going to exercise his will through this puppet king, as you're about to see, Ithbosheth. Indeed, Abner is not content to have Ishbosheth reign just in Gilead. Abner wants more. So you know what he does next? Abner goes on the offensive. In the next section, verses 12 through 17, Abner takes his men, travels quite a distance to go over to meet Joab, the commander of David's men, in order to intentionally provoke and stir up strife with David and his men. Abner suggests that 12 of his men and 12 of Joab's men engage in a competition, something akin to like a medieval tournament in which the knights kind of proved their, their prowess. So Joab meets up with Abner. Abner comes to him and says, let's have this competition. But you know what happens? This friendly competition turns deadly. Look at verses 15 and 17. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hezerum, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Tell me, class, how did all of these men die. They were struck where? In the belly. Guess what? There are going to be more deaths in these two chapters. And every one of them, without exception, every person we read who dies in the next several chapters, they die by being struck in the belly. This is not an insignificant detail. 
For tell me, class, who else have we read about that died from a belly wound? Saul. In 1 Samuel 31, Saul fell on his what? Sword. So you know what is happening here as this narrative unfolds? All the Saul-like figures who seek to oppose God's kingdom, which is the kingdom of David at this point, they perish. Okay, now, Joab is the commander of David's men. He has two brothers, Abiashai and Ashahel. Verse 18 tells us that Ashahel is fast, like Olympic fast. So after all these guys die, you know what Joab's brother Ahashel does? He goes after Abner in order to kill him. Yet get this, while, while he is chasing Abner, seeking to kill them, while they're running, Abner keeps yelling back to him, don't do this, don't do this, stop coming after me. And he's like, no, I'm coming after you. No, I'm coming. He's like, no, look, don't come after me. I don't want to kill you. He's like, no, I'm coming after you. And then notice what happens in verse 23. My eyes adjust to focus here. Sorry. <laughs> but he refused to turn aside. This is a Sahel. But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the what? With the butt of his spear. So the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. How do you think this made Joab feel? Remember, Joab is this guy's brother. How do you think it made him feel? Guess. Angry. He's pretty ticked off. Yet somehow Abner was able to convince Joab, hey, let's just stop fighting, let's take a break. So that's what they do. Chapter 3. In chapter 3, we learn that David's house keeps getting stronger while Saul's house, the house of Ishbobeth, I've heard it both ways, anyway, uh, he, he keeps getting weaker. Yet while Ishbosheth keeps getting weaker, the text says that Abner, his right-hand man, keeps getting stronger. And you know how that made Ishbosheth feel? Guess. Threatened. Do you know what Ishbosheth does? But by the way, are you just beginning to see all the conflict and problems here? So you know what Ishbosheth does? He accuses Abner of sleeping with one of his late father's concubines. In the ancient Near East, a man who took over the harem of the deceased king was asserting his claim to succession to the throne. So such an act would have been like, hey, I'm in charge now, not you. Now, did Abner actually do this? The text doesn't tell us, but what it does tell us is that Abner had enough with Ishbosheth. So you know what Abner decides to do? Join up with David. 
Look at what Abner says to David in verse 12 of chapter 3. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. So Abner's saying, I'm in control, the commanding army of all the rest of the tribes of Israel. I want to come over with you so we can finally unite all of God's people under your reign. So notice what David responds there in verse 13. And he said, good. (laughs) I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you is that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Remember, David killed a hundred Philistines in order to marry Saul's daughter. So that's what he does. Abner brings David, his wife Michael. David and Abner, they have a big feast. They agree to move forward together. And it appears as if at this point that David is finally going to unite all the tribes of Israel under his reign. Yet just after Abner and David had a great feast, they're throwing back a couple of drinks, having a great time, he sends Abner on his way just as Abner is walking out the door. Who comes strolling back in from raiding enemies? Joab. Joab's walking in. Abner's walking out. You can imagine the shock on Joab's face. So he inquires, what's going on here? And Joab is told, hey, Abner's now with us. Joab's undoubtedly, wait, wait. The guy that murdered my brother, who's been a thorn in the side of David this whole time, you're telling me he's now with King David? So you know what Joab does? This is, Joab yells at King David. Can you imagine the level of anger you must have to yell at a king? He's like, what are you doing? David tries to persuade him. Joab leaves, goes, sends a messenger, and says, you know what? Go get Abner back to me. I want to have a little meeting with him. And notice what Abner does. Look with me at verses 26 and following. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah. But David did not know about it. This is an important detail. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the what? Stomach. So that he died. For the blood of Ashahel, his brother. So he, he set up this private meeting to kill Abner. Now, was this murder motivated out of revenge? What do you think? Yes, absolutely. But there's something else going on here. We have to understand that he murdered Abner not only because he murdered 
his brother, but Joab, as a commanding officer himself, he realized that Abner posed a threat to Joab's job security in David's kingdom. And so he's again, Abner is killed in the stomach. And when David finds out, you know what he does? It's actually kind of surprising. When David finds out that Joab killed Abner, this key figure to uniting all of Israel, David doesn't have Joab executed, surprisingly enough. Instead, he just curses Joab. And then the chapter ends with David publicly grieving the murder of Abner. What a mess. Can I get an amen? Okay. Do you see what I mean when I say how David's ascension to become the king is marked by conflict and adversity? So I want to go back to this original question that I asked, and that is, so what's the source of all this bickering and fighting and murder we see in these chapters? In other words, why did all of this happen? Indeed, what is the source of the conflicts in our relationships? Is it any different than what we see in these chapters, or is it the same source? Here's an even better question. What would the New Testament authors say about the problems and conflicts not only in our lives, but also what we just read here in 2 Samuel? Well, the good news is we don't have to guess. The Apostle James answers this very question for us. Listen to what James writes in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I have it here on the screen. He hits this question directly. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Whether it's in your living room, your kitchen, Gilead or Hebron, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Where have we seen that in the last couple of minutes? You covet and do not obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your what? Your passions. What causes fights and quarrels among you? How many of you have ever experienced some kind of back or shoulder pain before? Anyone? Yes, Okay. I think I might have mentioned this to you before. I'm at the age right now where I can hurt myself sleeping, right? <laughs> I, I, I wake up and I'm like, oh, my shoulder hurts, right? It's not a lot of fun, is it? Amen, please? I was, I was talking to my dad recently and he was telling me about how he was experiencing terrible pain in tension in his shoulders. And as much as he tried to alleviate the pain through massages and ice packs, they would never go completely away. And this, this went on for weeks and weeks until one day my dad was over at a friend's house and he went into their jacuzzi and when he got into their jacuzzi he had one of the jets massage the bottom of his foot. Immediately the pain was gone in his shoulder. It was almost 
like magic. Now, why did my dad experience pain and tension in his shoulders for weeks and weeks and weeks, though he tried to massage it and put ice packs on it? You know why? Because my dad misdiagnosed the location of his pain as being the source of his pain. Big, big difference. You see, the discomfort in my dad's shoulder was simply the location of his pain. Where was the source of his pain? I'm giving you a hint. His foot. And it wasn't until he properly identified the source of his pain that he became pain-free. Friend, the same is true with us in conflict. In order for us to properly deal with conflict and resolve it in a healthy way, we must properly diagnose the source. And what is the source? It's other people. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's the difficult circumstances we experience. It's the stress from my job, isn't it? It's the disobedience of, of my children. It's, it's the uncaring nature of my spouse. It's the slow person in front of... James clearly identifies it, doesn't it? And that the answer is our passions within. The source of conflict is the inordinate lusts and desires within us. I mean, look at the language James used in this passage. James asked the rhetorical question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source, the passions that wage war within you? This is your ruling desires? Friend, you know why you fight with your spouse? You know why you quarrel with your siblings? James tells us it's because in that moment you desire something so greatly, you have a desire and a passion that's so strong, you're willing to sin to get it and sin if you don't. And when that happens, you will display the deeds of the flesh and conflict will ensue. I mean, look at the example James gives here. I made a different color for us. He says, you desire and do not have, so you what? You covet and cannot obtain, so you what? You do not have because you do not ask. And then he even gets at our prayers here. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I mean, is this not literally what we just read in 2 Samuel? Men coveting and wanting something so badly, they murder, they fight, they quarrel. So, so you know what James is saying? He's, he's saying this, and this is, this is a one-point sermon. You're welcome. And it's this. Okay? Your relational conflict comes from your ruling desires. Friend, please hear me. All the conflict, whether it is in your living room, your office room, your school room, your Sunday school room, your TV room, your bedroom, Hebron or Gilead, the source of every conflict is your ruling desires. You value something more than God in that moment. 
You want something so great that you'll sin to get it and sin if you don't. And the Bible has a word for that. And it's idolatry. You see, when we value something more than God, when we allow that desire to rule us, conflict will ensue. And this is the thing we have to understand. We're talking about desires. As Christians, friend, if you've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, if you belong to him, you have been given a distinct purpose for your life. And that is, in each and every moment, you are called to live to please Christ, not your passions. We read this earlier, did we not, in the worship service when we recited 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. Christian, you've been called in each and every moment to not ask the question, what do I want, and dig in my heels to get it. But as you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, you've been given this purpose in each and every situation, and that is, how can I please Christ in this moment? How can I honor Him in this decision? How can I honor Him, though me and my spouse right now, we're having a difference of opinion? Conflict comes when you dig in your heels and you allow your passions to rule you. But Christian, you've been given a far greater purpose in life, and that is to live for Christ. Listen, neither Abner nor Joab wanted to sit, submit to God's anointed king at that time, David. Joab certainly didn't in chapter 3 when he yelled at God's anointed king. <laughs> you know what Joab was doing when he was yelling at King David, God's anointed king, for allowing Abner in? He was saying, I'm smarter than you, David. Do we not do the same with whom King David points to in our lives? the King of kings and the Lord of Jesus Christ? Joab and Abner, they were not ruled by God's anointed king at that time, but by their desires. And friend, we have a similar war inside our hearts each and every day between our desires and submitting and following our true King Jesus Christ. You see, if I could just drill down here for a moment. When we allow something other than God to rule our hearts, you know what we do? We dehumanize everyone around us. People either become an instrument to fulfill my desires or they're an obstacle that's preventing me from getting me what I want. I dehumanize them. I mean, what was Ishbosheth to Abner, if not simply a vehicle to exercise his will and get what he wanted? What was Abner to Joab, if not a threat to his high ranking position? So, friend, please take note according to the Bible, 
the source of your conflict is not external but internal. And if we are going to think biblically about conflict, then we must believe and embrace what God's Word teaches. So this is what I want you to do. Take a moment and think back to the last conflict or fight you had with your spouse, sibling, or coworker. What did you want in that moment? Don't get me wrong. Differences aren't sin. But when we make our differences, when we make our preferences ruling desires, we're willing to sin to get it and sin if we don't. Now we're in trouble. Whatever it was in that moment, it was your ruling desire. Because here's the thing. If your ruling desire was Christ, you know what? I might really, really, really want to go to Mex- have Mexican food for lunch this afternoon. And my family, they might want to go to Five Guys. Okay? Actually, both don't sound so bad now that I think about it. Okay? But, okay? If I make Mexican food, which can be a legitimate ruling desire for many of us, right? If I make Mexican food the thing I want the most, I'm going to not display the fruit of the Spirit, but I'm going to be anger, short, harsh to get my ruling desire. But if in that moment they want to go to Five Guys and I want to go to Gustavo's, if I'm, like, if I'm asking myself, how can I live for Christ here? If Christ is my ruling desire, I'm going to display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. Do you see? The source is what we are desiring and are most passionate about. Ourselves are honoring Christ. One more thing by way of application. So often, like my dad and his shoulder pain, we misdiagnose the location of our conflict as the source of our conflict, don't we? So this is what I want to tell you in love, friend. Please listen to me. Your marriage is not the source of your conflict. It's simply the location. Your marriage is the location where your ruling desires, your lusts are being revealed. And I cannot overstate how important it is for us to understand this. And here's why. Because you know what happens when you misdiagnose the location of your conflict as being the source of your conflict? You change locations. That's going to be your solution. This is why couples in difficult marriages think the solution is to dissolve the marriage. If I can just get away from this person, my life will be better. And sadly, I've seen too many people make disastrous choices based on this misdiagnosis. A husband leaves his wife, an employee leaves his company, a teenager moves out of the house at a young age, all because they think the source of their conflict is the location of the conflict. These people, ah, get rid of them. So you know what? It isn't long before the husband has a new wife. The person has a new job. The teenager has a new roommate. And guess what? They're experiencing the same conflicts. 
Why? Because they never dealt with the source, their ruling passions and desires. And can I ask, is there any area in your life where you're misdiagnosing the location of your conflict as the source? Your relational conflict comes from your ruling desires. James 4 teaches this. I think 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 3 masterfully illustrate it. So you know what this means? And I do not mean to hurt your feelings, but I'm going to say it anyway. What this means is you are your greatest problem in your relational conflicts. And for you to get out of the conflict rut you find yourself in, you know what you need? You need a new heart. You need a new passion. And friend, that's precisely what Jesus Christ gives to all who trust in him. Because listen to me, your passions, your desires, they are way too strong for you to change on your own. You can't do it. The Bible teaches that we all are sinners by nature and by choice. As creatures who have been made for God, by God, we, we have not loved God like we ought. We have not worshipped Him like we ought. No, you know what we've done? Instead, we've chosen to live for ourselves. Indeed, you know what we've done? We've chosen to live for whatever passions occupy our hearts. And the Bible makes it clear that our sin earns us something, and that's judgment, God's just judgment. In our sin, we deserve eternal punishment from God in hell. Yet, friend, please hear me. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died the death we are owed on the cross. Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live, and on the cross, Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God for all who would trust in him. Then three days later, he defeated sin by walking out of an empty tomb. And Christ did this for people who are overcome with their desires. People who are so self-focused. People like you and me. Salvation comes to not those who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and trust their own moral performance to eradicate this sin debt. No, salvation comes to those who confess to God, God, I have been living for myself. And there is nothing I can do to save myself except trust in the work of your son, Jesus Christ, and receive his righteousness by faith. Friend, have you done that? Has there come a moment in your life where you've put your faith solely in Christ and not your own righteousness to save you? Because for those of you who have put your trust in Christ, Christ not only forgives you, but you know what else he gives you? He gives you his spirit to help you walk in obedience. And not only that, and this is what we've been talking about, Christian, he then gives you a new passion. A passion to no longer live for yourself, but a passion to please Christ. So this is my application, my final application. I know I've been saying this a lot this morning. <laughs> Truthfully, this is the last one. <laughs> this week, 
in light of this truth, the question you need to ask yourself in each and every situation, whether it's as silly as deciding where to go to lunch or other major decisions, the question is not, what do I want? But what does God want of me in this moment? My prayer is that that would be our ruling desire. A desire to please Christ in each and every situation. Amen? Let's pray.